Well, it is a real honor to be able to preach before this blessed congregation and even this time to do it digitally. I've known of this congregation for uh, some months since, some years really, since Travis was a student at Gordon-Conwell and I got to know Bruce and some of your other leaders at a course, but I was hoping to see all of you face to face, but maybe at least you can see me face to face, but this coronavirus has interrupted us and so, I'll be here on video, but with delight to be in your presence. What I'd like to preach on today comes from Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 to 38. I'm calling it, there is just one problem, but it's big. So listen to the text. And Jesus went through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, would you now pour out your spirit upon the proclaiming of this word that all of us who are able to hear and access this sermon today may actually be moved by word and spirit together, opening us to seeing more of what you intend for us to see in your word. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Two rather famous things happened on April the 15th, 1912 that have to do with our world here in Boston. One is a baseball story and that was the day that Fenway Park opened in Boston. But the other thing that happened is what I would say is a cautionary tale for those of us who hang around churches. And that is that that was the day that the Titanic sank in the waters of the North Atlantic. Now, thanks to the movie about the story, many of you know the story of the sinking of the Titanic, but you might not know the story of the rescue of the Titanic. Are you aware that there were actually two ships in neighboring waters on that very night. One ship, the Californian, was close enough to see the lights on the Titanic. Research showed that that ocean liner on its way to Boston was around four miles from the Titanic, and it was visible to the Titanic. The Californian had entered the ice field earlier than the Titanic. They are the ship that actually, out of concern for danger, had dropped their anchor and sent a message to the Titanic, urging them not to enter the dangerous ice field. But the Titanic had to move forward. They were on a timetable. They wanted to get there somehow quicker than anybody had ever crossed the Atlantic, and so they pressed forward into the ice field, hit their iceberg, initially thought it was no problem at all, only later to discover it was a tremendous problem, and the Titanic actually sent a wireless message 
to this ship, the Californian, when they realized the extent of their damage, asking for help in rescuing some of the ship's people and crew that were there. But the wireless message arrived at the Californian 10 minutes after the wireless operator on the Californian had gone to bed. So the message was not received until the next day. Thus, there was no response from the Californian. As it was getting more iffy on the Titanic, seven red flares went up into the night sky from the Titanic. The night watchman on the Californian saw those red flares and wasn't sure exactly what they meant. So the watchman went down and woke up Captain Lord, uh, which was a rather risky thing to do at that time of night. And after discussion, they didn't know what to make of those flares together. And they concluded that the Titanic must be sending a signal of danger to a ship that must be coming behind the Titanic. And so the captain went back to sleep. Most of the passengers on the Californian were happily sleeping through the night, not aware that just a short distance away, a ship was going down into the sea. If the Californian had responded, many fewer people would have perished. There was a second ship in those waters, not as close. It was called the Carpathia. The 705 survivors that were rescued were all rescued by this ship. It was a cruise ship that was headed to the Mediterranean. Had wealthy people on board. They were looking forward to a wonderful cruise around the Mediterranean Sea. When the message, the wireless message arrived on that ship, Captain Rostrum uh, decided that they needed to turn the ship around, head straight north where the Titanic was, and abort their cruise ship to the Mediterranean, abort their cruise to the Mediterranean. So that's what Captain Rostrum did. He called all the people onto the deck. He informed them of the danger for the Titanic, that they would no longer be going to the Mediterranean, that they would become a hospital ship and a rescue ship for the Titanic. And so they turned north. They proceeded and increased their speed from 14 knots to 17 knots. And they made the 40 or so miles arriving at the Titanic at 4 a.m., and all of the survivors that were there were rescued by the Carpathia. Two ships in the water, one sleeping through the night, the other one on a mission. As I study congregations, I notice that most congregations actually feel like one or the other of those ships. There is a cultural disaster going on, not just the coronavirus, but all of the issues that are going on in our increasingly de-Christian society. And many of our congregations are more or less sleeping through the night, unaware that any kind of rescue needs to be enacted. Other congregations are beginning to function more like the Carpathia at the urging of Captain Rostrum and shifting from being on a religious cruise ship to being on a rescue ship. I want you to look at this text with me from Matthew 9. 
The context for it is that Jesus is proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. He's healing. He is encouraging. The kingdom means the reign in which, the realm in which Christ is reigning. The kingdom is where the values and the life of Jesus get expressed in the kingdom of this world. And so Jesus begins this text with the interesting picture of seeing the crowd. So I want us to focus on the eyes of Jesus. When he saw the crowd, the word for seeing here is one of many New Testament words for the verb to see, but it means actually to behold or to notice, to actually see something. I think many of us, would we not agree, have the ability to see things, but we don't always notice things. After my wife and I have been out in somebody's home, uh, in a dining room perhaps, we'll be driving home and my wife will say, what did you think of the draperies in the dining room? And I'll say, draperies? Were there draperies in there? She said, your chair was brushing up against them. How did you not see them? Well, see, that's the difference in seeing something and noticing something. I'm sure my eyes registered that there was something on the wall, but I didn't really see it. And I would guess I'm not the only one watching this video who might have that same experience. So if you feel like elbowing anybody, you can do it right now, even with uh, social distance. So, so the word means to notice. When he noticed the crowds, when he actually saw them. And so my question is, do we really notice the people living all around us? Do we notice the clerks in the grocery stores? Do we notice people who, when we can go to a restaurant, wait on us in the restaurants? Do we actually see people in the doctor's office? Or are they all just transactional figures in our life and we don't actually entirely see the people that are in front of us? Maybe we don't even see our neighbors. Maybe they simply pass in and out of their garage doors with their garage door openers and we barely notice. Well, when Jesus noticed the people, notice what he saw. He saw that they were harassed and helpless like lost sheep. When he saw the people, he actually noticed that they were not in the best seasons of their life, that they were vexed, annoyed, troubled, that it seemed that they had an anxious state of mind. To see people who are in that picture Jesus gave us like sheep without a shepherd. Now, we don't often think about sheep and shepherds because we live in North America, but in that, in that time in Palestine, that was a vivid image for them because sheep without shepherds would be very anxious. It would be like a classroom without a teacher or worse, with a substitute teacher. Everybody's just out misbehaving in some kind of way. How do you see this country? Do you see this country as everybody's having a, a great time? Or do you actually see the fact that between 120 and 150 million Americans are functionally secular people who are effectively outside of the touch of the church? And do you realize there are only four countries in the world that actually have more unchurched people than here in the United States? Those four are India, China, India, Russia, and Indonesia. Those are the only countries that have more, in terms of sheer number, 150 million unreached people. 
do we see them? It was St. Augustine who said, oh Lord, you have made us for yourselves. And our hearts are going to be restless until we find our rest in the oh Lord. We live in a culture. Do we see it as Jesus sees it? Well, when Jesus saw it, the third thing to notice in this text is that he had compassion on them. Compassion is actually one of the greatest drivers to move us because Jesus is actually hurting for them. He was not indifferent. He was not approving of it. His whole ministry was moving toward people in tremendous compassion for them. I believe the greatest motivation for evangelism and mission around the world is compassion. It's not guilt. It's not compulsion. It's not simply recruitment. I can't guilt you into doing mission. But when you feel it from the inside that Jesus is so in love with the people of this earth and we're not even noticing them, living in Colorado Springs for many years put me in touch with a man named Wes Stafford. Wes was the head of Compassion International in those days. And believe it or not, he had a huge compassionate heart for people. I would often meet with him twice a year. Probably we would have lunch at Applebee's. And over our time at Applebee's, I would say, Wes, what have you seen around the world lately? And he would tell me stories of children around the world. And as he told me those stories, I would find that he was crying pretty quickly. And because he was crying in his compassion for those children, pretty soon in Applebee's, I was crying. And it often caused the waiter to come over and say, are you guys all right? <laughs> we were not, absolutely. But when you begin to recognize the needs of this world, it can open your heart to a tremendous compassion for the lost. But we need to ask, is the compassion of Jesus alive in us? Or have we taken the switch and turned it off? Because it takes too much out of us to feel compassion. So recognize that Jesus saw the crowds, he saw them as harassed and helpless, and he had compassion on them. Do we see and feel as Jesus sees and feels? And that leads us then to what Jesus notices. He sees a plentiful possibility. This is the text where he says the harvest is plentiful. He actually thinks that in this world filled with lost people, that a harvest is actually quite possible. In another place, it calls this ripe to the harvest or white unto the harvest. He saw people not just as harassed, but also ready to respond to the invitation to believe. He saw aspects of the kingdom of God emerging right in his midst. The crying was present, but so was the power of God. At Gordon-Conwell, we have students from around 50 countries in the world. We have a dozen or so from China. And the reports of those students is simply thrilling what God's doing in a place where just a few years ago, we had utter hopelessness about what God was going to be doing in China. There's a plentiful harvest. In Boston, for the first time in years, the church is actually growing in the hub of Boston, mostly among immigrant populations. The harvest is actually plentiful. In Weston, what's the harvest like? In Natick, in Wellesley, in Wayland, how is the harvest here? What does it look like here? Do you see plentiful possibilities? 
Because there are unreached people all around this area. How would Jesus have seen the possibilities here? Would he say, oh, it's a shame that not more people go to church? Or would he say, wow, this is a church ready to be ignited to reach the lost. The harvest is indeed plentiful. We don't need to worry about this harvest abounding. It's there. That's not the problem. There is one big problem, however. There are not enough harvesters. Jesus says the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. There are just not enough people in the harvest. There are not enough churches, actually, in the harvest. Do you realize in the United States, there are about 360,000 congregations. Right now, 85% of those are either plateaued, meaning we just have a plus or minus 2% growth, or they are declining. And the ones that are growing actually are growing mostly by what we call a circulation of the saints. They're not growing by reaching lost people. Because the culture, you see, has tried to make a deal with us and we've accepted the deal. We'll let you have churches here if you won't bother us with your beliefs. And we think, well, they probably don't want to be bothered with our beliefs. And it's very difficult in some respects to imagine how are we going to reach people. But Americans, for a long time, American Christians have actually not known how to share their faith with other people. When we've done a recent study, the Barnett Group did it on how many spiritual conversations does the average American have each year. 50% of all Christian Americans have fewer than 10 spiritual conversations in a year. Now you go, wait a minute, that's impossible. We're at church many Sundays a year. Certainly we're having spiritual conversations at the coffee hour, right? Well, we're actually not. We're usually talking about things like the Patriots or the Celtics or the weather. Most Christians don't even have spiritual conversations with other Christians. How then are we going to have spiritual conversations with those who are not Christian? I would imagine in these next weeks, despite our social distancing, there are going to be ways to have conversations with neighbors, maybe people in grocery stores, maybe people on walks that we may not have had before. And we may be able to ask people, what is your hope in the middle of this time? And just imagine what they might have to say. There are plentiful possibilities. There's one big problem, not enough people in the harvest. I've got a student friend who's now graduated and back in Nigeria, he's working especially among Muslim people, which is a very risky and dangerous thing to do. And every time we are in contact, he is telling me more about the harvest that is there. I've got friends working inside Nepal, a very non-believing country, and there is harvest there. But Paul asked the question, how is people going to hear without somebody telling them? Most churches have a mission statement that says, we're going to do this. And most churches are waiting for people to come to us when we're called to go to them. The reality that we're not doing this troubled Soren Kierkegaard, a Danish theologian years ago, and he loved to tell parables. 
And one of the parables he told is about a man who was walking down a sidewalk, saw a sign uh, in a window of a shop that said, pants pressed here. And he looked down and he thought, I think my trousers do need pressing. So he walked in, started unbuckling his belt, and the man behind the counter said, what are you doing? He said, well, I'm about to give you my pants. Why are you giving me your pants? Well, they need to be pressed. Well, why would you give them to me? And he said, well, I'm confused. There, there was a sign in the window that said, pants pressed here. So I brought them here. And the man said, I see your problem. We don't press pants here. We just paint signs here. Kierkegaard said this because the Danish church all had a mission statement that said we're doing this. But they weren't doing this. Have we let the gospel get out from here? It starts by asking great questions. Like you find in scripture, the first question God asks in the Bible is, Adam, where are you? When you're walking on a trail and you're passing people in this quarantine area, you can simply ask them, where, where are you these days? Where are you spiritually? Where are you in the midst of this virus? Another great question that Jesus asked, the first question he asked is, what are you looking for? What are we looking for in the middle of this time? But a lot of us don't naturally do that. We want that to happen at the church. Adolf Harnack had this fascinating quote, church historian of the 19th century. We cannot hesitate to believe that the great mission of Christianity was in reality accomplished by means of informal missionaries. That was the secret. Every Christian, not just a formal order of missionaries supplied by the Christians at home, considered it his or her obligation to bear witness. But now, he says, seemingly, that's been lost. That's been lost. We're not doing it anymore. And part of what it would mean to become the Carpathia is for us to say, I think I want to share Christ with my neighbors, with those who I'm passing by in these days in a way that would recognize the process of believing is slow, but it starts with somebody sharing something. From first hearing to belief on average for people is about four years coming from an average of about five different people to witness. But the major problem is there's not enough people in the harvest. The plan of Jesus, the surprising solution, is to pray. To pray that God will send more harvesters into the harvest field. That's the solution. That's what we're called to do. Who is it you could pray for that would be one of those that could enter the harvest field. Yes, certainly it could be you, but it could be somebody else that you want to pray that God will disturb in such a way that they'll be willing to enter that harvest field. So in conclusion, I think we've got a choice here at Westgate Church. Which ship are we more like? Are we more like the Californians sleeping while something's going on that is very troubling, or are we more like the Carpathia? We've changed course to actually do what God is calling us to do. The harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. Let's pray. Lord, would you stir all of us up to enter into this harvest field in such a way that we might bear witness, each one of us, to somebody who needs to know and give us the grace to know how to do that.
for we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.